I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. It's been a while since I've said those words. Today's topic is... Johnny Quest. Who is Johnny Quest? Well, he's the protagonist and figurehead of the action-adventure franchise created by illustrator and director Doug Wildey. He's also a time-honored and highly beloved boy adventurer that has thrilled generations of animation and comic book fans. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into his history. Quest File 037. Johnny Quest had an extremely humble beginnings. Created by comic book artist and animation director Doug Wildey, the character draws on a lengthy history of pulp influences and action adventure stories. Chief among them, Tom Swift Jr. and Terry and the Pirates. Quest would quickly win over the hearts and minds of a generation of young TV fans. His success would be short lived, though. Or rather, it would be initially short lived. But before we get into that, Let's start at the beginning. In 1962, after working at Cambria Productions, the animation company that pioneered the bizarrely compelling Syncovox animation style, Doug Wildey was in need of a job. Space Angel, the Space Ghost slash Buck Rogers style animated show that he and numerous other comic book industry professionals like Alex Toth had been working on, had recently come to an end. Before we get too deep into this, have you seen either Clutch Cargo or Space Angel, the Cambria Productions duology of weird Syncovox animated shows. I've watched like I think every episode of Clutch Cargo. Space Angel I have not seen although I read a big coffee table book of Alex Toth artwork and there's a bunch of stuff in there. Was that called Genius Illustrated? I think so. It was at Krusty Bunker, the comic book shop that is owned by Neil Adams' son by my house. I contemplated buying it. You just you stood there for like 4 hours and read the whole thing. <laughs> So for anybody who doesn't know, what we're talking about is this, I think it was at a both a U.S. and Canadian co-production where Clutch Cargo and Space Angel are these two TV shows that are made using this animation style where they had 2D drawings for environments and people, but then the mouths would be live action plates where the mouths of the people would be the mouths of the actors talking and delivering the lines and they're mesmerizing. I love them. They're so fucking cool. They're very weird. They're really fucking strange, but they look really cool, especially because the artists that worked on the series were these like seminal kind of mid 60s, early 70s illustrator type dudes, chief among them being Alex Toth and Doug Wildey. And I'm a huge Doug Wildey fan. Clutch Cargo, it must have come on Cartoon Network in the 90s. I don't remember exactly. All the Hanna-Barbera shows, including Johnny Quest, definitely were syndicated on Cartoon Network in the 90s, and that's where I watched them. I don't remember exactly where Clutch Cargo was from, but it must have also come on Cartoon Network. Yeah, it feels like the type of thing that they would have played like either late at night or on Saturday mornings in like, you know, retro animation blocks or something, or Hanna-Barbera blocks or something. Fairly quickly, Doug Wildey, a Yonkers, New York native who spent many years in Arizona, landed another gig in Hollywood. He was tasked with developing a show 
at Hanna-Barbera, the limited animation company that had taken over the small screen all throughout the 60s and 70s. His first assignment from the higher-ups was to develop a pitch reel for the classic radio serial Jack Armstrong All-American Boy. The pitch featured key art images and technical references that were cribbed from popular science and popular mechanics articles. Wildey was obsessed with making a show that would depict a credible futurism that might actually be achievable. So these are some some images from the Jack Armstrong pitch reel. Do they look familiar to you? Yeah, I mean, they look exactly like Johnny Quest. These are the exact images from the intro credits. They just reuse those assets. Of course Which is did. why the people in, the, in this little, like, hovercraft thing in the intro credits of Johnny Quest are noticeably not Haji, Johnny, Benton, or Race. They're just, like, two random people. <laughs> I always just assumed they were bad guys or something. Yeah, but they're like going into the plane, you know, the quest plane. These images are obviously made by Doug Wildey's hand, you know, his thick black outline, brush illustration style, his, you know, kind of watercolor or gouache technique, an attempt at photorealism, also some kind of problematic depictions of natives because it's an adventure thing and most adventure stories are racist. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit on the, what episode was it? It might have just been episode one that I wasn't there for, and I'm just a listener that heard that episode. Something about adventure stories or like Hanna-Barbera cartoons from the 60s or something like that. And we were talking about Scooby-Doo and how it just seemed like during this time, it was like they went out of their way to show racist caricatures of other cultures. They were like going for it. It wasn't just like, oh, we're a product of our time and we happen to have these backwards beliefs. They were like, no, this shit's going to have some offensive Native American characters in it. It's a quota, bitch. Yeah, Johnny Quest especially. There's an episode where they go and they meet pygmies and like the pygmies think that race after getting dyed purple in a vat of like blueberry juice or some shit is like a demigod. Is real like, ooh, that's not good, guys. Not good. Yeah, and it's from episode one. I watched uh, a bunch of Johnny Quest with my kids because it's on Tubi. And it's from episode one. God forbid you talk to me about this. God forbid you're like, hey, I'm rewatching Johnny Quest. God forbid. We were, we were going through a, a rough patch there during that time. Is it you and your children or you and me? Yeah, I was going through a rough patch with my kids. And I was just like, you know what? We got to mend our relationship. Let's just keep this between us. I'm not going to bring Dave into this. I know you guys get a little sick of me bringing Dave into everything. We're going to keep this to the three of us. Yeah, I know Dave is the size of one of you, but he's just not as cute, man. He's got that weird old man face, you know? Like, sure, his proportions are that of a child, but it's just not cool. Last night, Phoenix WK was like, hey, dad, what is going on other than this is really awesome and I'm going to talk about it for the rest of my life to my children and my children's children, and it's going to become my whole thing. He just said that whole thing to me. It's from the comeback episode, the murder mystery episode with Dr. Sponch. It's really funny to me that he even is aware that the show exists, but it's doubly weird that he's got it memorized. Yeah, he's got like several quotes memorized. That is so strange to me. Wow. What a world. This Jack Armstrong pitch fell through due to rights issues, tragically. Or maybe for the best, because Hanna-Barbera both loved the concept and asked Wildey to retrofit what they already had for a new show. Barbera specifically had just watched Dr. No and felt that there was an untapped well of money and enthusiasm if they could find a concept that would be similar enough to pull in some of the fans of Bond mania. 
This is evidenced by the working title of the original Johnny Quest pilot, Quest File 037. The show would take the best of Milton Kniff's work and pulp novels and make something that would thrill children for generations. Historian Daniel Herman wrote, While these designs on Johnny Quest gave the cartoon a distinctive look, with its heavy blacks, i.e. shading and shadow, and its Kniff-inspired characters, the show was an action-adventure story involving the feature's namesake, an 11-year-old boy. The cast of characters included Johnny's kid sidekick named Haji, Johnny's globe-trotting scientist dad, and the group's handsome bodyguard, secret agent Race Bannon, who looks as if he stepped out of the pages of Kniff's comic strip, Steve Canyon. The look of Johnny Quest was unlike any other cartoon television show of the time, with its colorful backgrounds and its focus on the characters and their jetpacks, hydrofoils, and lasers. Wildey would work on other animation projects, but it was with his work on Johnny Quest that he would reach his widest audience, bringing a comic book sense of design and style to television cartoons. Yeah, so now I kind of just want to discuss the cast a little bit you know as that summary illustrated no pun intended we have johnny who's the kind of preteen adventurer cut from the same cloth as tom swift jr or terry from terry and the pirates or hardy boys or nancy drew bacon and legs bacon and legs hugely influential on johnny quest then we have haji who's his adopted brother race bannon who is somewhat akin to a kind of bondian archetype of the globetrotting super spy who secretly has a heart of gold, but on the exterior seems to be persnickety or cold. And then Benton Quest, the scientist who his wife has died in the various incarnations. She's died in different ways, and he struggles to connect with his son. And for some reason, he's taken on just a uber handsome male ward to protect his children. We're going to get there. And then the final member is Bandit, their dog. And I know that Doug Wildey hated Bandit, and he did not design Bandit, which is why Bandit does not have a naturalistic canine look. He's like a cartoon dog. Because that's the thing is like Johnny Quest, it's way less cartoony than most of the other Hanna-Barbera cartoons that came out like after this. And Bandit is almost like a template for what the characters are going to look like in the Herculoids and, you know those shows a little bit more stylized i don't think it's going to come as a shock to anybody listening to this but i love johnny quest i love all the characters i love the idea of a globe-trotting group of super scientists it's almost like i've written a book that is very similar to that in concept called mary tyler moorhawk about a preteen adventurer and her family of adopted super scientists who travel the globe attempting to stop supervillains and avert catastrophes That might come up again at some point during this episode. Yeah, but let's not talk about that. Yeah, you're right. Johnny Quest is the main event here. Let's not confuse this with like discussions of other similar things. Yeah, yeah, totally. Let's talk about Johnny Quest. This is a perfect opportunity then to discuss when we initially found Johnny Quest. Do you remember when you first kind of interacted with it? Oh, yeah, 100%. I feel like I've talked in depth about this subject so often because it's like it's a fascinating phenomenon to me. But I think that a lot of people don't realize that there was this really interesting and unique phenomenon in the early 90s where it was sort of the dawn of cable television. Cable television existed prior to that in the 80s, but it became this must-have middle-class luxury to have cable TV. And it was this big boom. And so all these cable channels started up and they were all kind of these like, hyper niche. It was like there was a channel all about cartoons and there was a channel all about comedy and there was a channel all about animals. So there was like a 24 hour channel of this one specific thing, but they didn't have any original programming. They had like maybe one or two shows. And so they had to fill up this 24 hour block with stuff. 
And so they just started buying up libraries of old content from, you know, the last 50 years of TV. And so because of that, as kids in the 90s, we got to see all this stuff that we would have never seen otherwise. Like we would have never been exposed to these things. And, you know, generations after that aren't really exposed to things from the past in the same way we were because there's like a new TV show every three seconds. So it's like you're going to go back and watch some show from the 1960s when there's like a new TV show that you need to start watching now, whereas we didn't have that. So we just like got to experience all these old media from the fucking 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And so on Cartoon Network, because they, you know, owned the Hanna-Barbera library and the Warner Brothers library, you know, we watched Looney Tunes and Hanna-Barbera cartoons, which we wouldn't have watched otherwise, really. Like, Looney Tunes is such a, like, iconic thing in my mind. But, like, if cable TV hadn't happened, it would have just been some old thing from the 40s that I don't know if it would have really had the cultural cachet that it did. Like, we wouldn't have had Space Jam. God forbid. Space Jam is overrated. But anyway, on Cartoon Network, they showed all of these Hanna-Barbera cartoons. And I remember distinctly just being over at my dad's house because for whatever reason, my mom's house was a Nickelodeon house. We watched Nickelodeon and Disney Channel. But whenever I was over at my dad's house, it was like Cartoon Network 24-7. And I just like injected all this shit into my fucking veins on a, on a drip daily. So I was out there watching Johnny Quest and, you know, old Scooby-Doo episodes and the Herculoids and, you know, Huckleberry Hound and Magilla Gorilla, Yogi Bear. I was just watching this stuff all day. Yeah, I watched Johnny Quest and eventually the new adventures of Johnny Quest, which also aired on Cartoon Network all the time. The crazy thing is, it's like there wasn't actually that many episodes of the show, but it's weird how they make it feel like there's more episodes than there are. Like they just play it on a loop, but they play it out of order. Like they don't play episodes in sequential order. They just play them in random order. And so you never really understand that there's only a handful of episodes. And you just think that it's this huge show with like hundreds of episodes. And you don't realize you're watching the same ones over and over again. I first encountered Johnny Quest at my uncle's house in Phoenix. He had a, an extensive VHS collection of things he had taped off of TV. And he taped a bunch of Johnny Quest episodes. And so whenever we would go up to Phoenix to visit my cousins... I would basically just be like, Uncle Willie, you got to put on that fucking Johnny Quest shit, man. And so he'd put it on. At the first time, I was just like, what the fuck is this? This is amazing. This little kid with a fucking jetpack and like a dog. This is so cool. And then every time I, we would go back, I'd be like, we got to watch that Johnny Quest, man. We got we to gotta watch this Johnny Quest. And I loved it. I loved it so much. Just like almost from the word go, I was like, this is my favorite thing ever. And the racism... Unfortunately, I think as a little kid kind of went over my head. I didn't really understand that stuff so much. Did Doug Wildey and the rest of the people that work on the show try to make something that was accurate and forward looking? Yes. But also because of the tropes of the adventure genre, it's like, let's go to the Congo, which is like a modern country. That's the interesting thing. That's kind of like the nuance of it, because I think people who like maybe are younger and just don't know what we're talking about. They might think of it as like, oh, yeah, these like old cartoons that are just like super racist. And in a sense, that's true. But also the interesting thing is, is I think in the late 60s and 70s, because like by today's standards, it's still very old fashioned, but like it was a time of progressivism. And so especially in the late 60s and early 70s, these cartoons, like they were actually really trying to be diverse and progressive. I talked about Scooby-Doo earlier. In Scooby-Doo, there's this attempt in that show to go to a bunch of different countries and cultures and like explore different cultures. 
The issue is, is that they just kind of fail at it. <laughs> like they just don't, they, they do a, a bad job. Chief example of what you're talking about is the inclusion of Haji, right? The character is supposed to be Indian, but like, you know, he also, it's so disappointing in some contexts where he has like magical powers. Yeah, he has the very like East Indian magical power trope where he's like, I can hypnotize snakes and stuff like that. So it's like you tried to make this like diverse and bring in this like cultural identity of this Haji character, but then you made him like a freaking swami, like hypnotizing snakes with a flute. <laughs> like Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm going to look up and see. Let's see here. So the 1964 version was portrayed by a person named Danny Bravo. Uh, Danny Bravo. Oh, wow. Danny Bravo, not a white person. This makes me so excited. Watch this recently, and his accent is not like offensive. I mean, it sounds relatively authentic. Daniel. So Danny Bravo is the stage name of Daniel Zaldivar. But what is the ethnicity of Danny Zaldivar? Because Loki, the photo that's on Johnny Quest's Wikipedia of Danny Zaldivar kind of looks like someone in brownface. But I think that's more just the photographic technology of the time. And I'm not finding any information with a quick Google search about his racial background. So we're going to just move on. But that's very cool. I'm just excited that it's not like a six foot tall white guy, because that's kind of what I always had assumed it was. And it's this weird thing, too, where like for the time, the inclusion of a character who is a non-American and be a person of color is really cool. The problem being that it's this weird like kind of orientalist you know amalgam of different cultures haji itself i think is an honorific in muslim cultures the character i think is supposed to be indian but also they meet him in egypt which could be you know could be a thing but they never really like underscore that it's it's always just kind of like guess what he's a brown person and he has magical powers which is kind of like that's not so great guys but also he's funny and charming and you like the character in the show as a little kid. But then you kind of get a little older and you're like, oh, this isn't so hot, guys. This isn't so great. Yeah, there's a character like that in the 1970s, I think, Annie movie, where like there's just like a Indian butler or like bodyguard of Daddy Warbucks. And at one point he just uses like mystical hypnosis powers. <laughs> it's like. And that other than the fact that the movie's a musical, it's like fairly like this is the real world. There's no magical elements of it. But then like randomly this Indian guy just uses magical powers. It's really weird. Racist, I think is what they call that. Yeah, let's watch the intro of the Mystery of the Lizard Men, which is the finished pilot and talk about the animation style and specifically the score. I love the score of this. The silhouette of a ship rolling along water, and there's a big foreground element of all these kind of like wrecked ships, which is a Doug Wildey directorial staple. I love it. See, the, it won't play because of the screen recording protection or whatever, but there's like a there's an amazing remaster on Tubi that just looks beautiful. Like this is all, I mean, it's on YouTube. It's like some upload from some random person. This is all blurry and shitty, but like the one on Tubi looks great. Aye, aye, sir. My left a mile of seaweed. Yeah, the Sargasso Sea. Some of those wrecks out there are hundreds of years old. Gives me the creeps. I'll be glad to get out of here. One voice actor doing every character's Something voice. Bow. Let me see. 
looks like a red beam swinging towards us. Explosion just looks really cool. Madrina, what was that? An explosion. Quick, Miguel, stop the engines. We will go see what happened. See, but first I will call the Coast Guard. Hello, hello, operator. Sweet frogmen coming out from the sea. This is the fishing boat Estralina. Put me through to the Coast Guard. Hurry, please. This is an emergency. I wish to report a mysterious... Miguel, what is it? Miguel? That music. Another ship exploding. See anything yet, Junior? Nothing, Skipper. Just yards and yards of ocean. Beats me how a fishing boat can disappear like that. Uh-oh. I see something. Take her down. Call in C4Y. This is Rescue Also, just imagine, imagine a modern-day kids cartoon that just, like, the first five minutes of it just don't have the characters. It's just, like, a setup of a story. But also, look how well, naturalistic all, right, all these characters yes, are drawn and how delirious. they all look like real people. Spanish. What do you make of it, Roberts? It's Portuguese, Mr. Corbin. Something about explosions and thin red lights. Keeps repeating about some kind of sea lizard climbing into his boat. Doesn't make much sense. Well, perhaps not. Well, thanks, Doctor. We have to get back. Maybe it doesn't make much sense, but the fact remains that five ships have disappeared in the Sargassus file sea 037. in the last month. Better get me file 037 and call the airport. You're calling in Dr. Benton Quest? Right. So good. Okay, so a couple things uh, I would like to point out about the animation style. One, as everyone probably knows, it's done in what the Hanna-Barbera studio pioneered as the style of limited animation, which means that there is the majority of the image doesn't move and there's a single aspect of the picture plane that's isolated and redrawn. So if there is a man standing there, he doesn't move just his neck and head kind of swivel back and forth as the dialogue happens and it's the same open closed lip flap or someone's writing on a notepad and their whole body doesn't move but just the hand is kind of moving which is a cost-saving endeavor and normally this shit drives me crazy i don't like it that being said because it's doug wildy and alex toth and a bunch of other super rad comic book people this shit looks amazing. It looks so cool. The backgrounds and the character illustrations are so immaculate. Even though it's the limited animation style, it's like you're looking at like a series of beautiful paintings as you're watching the show. So yes, it is kind of almost like a slideshow of images with like a head moving and talking. But unlike many of the other Hanna-Barbera shows with limited animation after this, where they kind of cut the cost even more, 
where it's like limited animation and it looks like garbage. I have like a huge affinity for those shows, but they don't look good. They were made to be cheap intentionally. But these ones, it's just like every frame is a beautiful work of art. It's so moody. The vibes it has make up for the fact that it's not full animation and then some. Yeah, and I think the two things that are responsible for that are one, Doug Wildey's directorial style. And two, the brassy jazz sound, you know, the score. Just even the theme song in the opening credits. Oh, wait, no, that's the Real Adventures one. But whatever, it doesn't matter. You know what I'm fucking saying? The theme is the same. It's just a different arrangement of it. The New Adventures one is a more kind of like... But the original one is the same chart. I love the theme. And I love that... And then it drops you into the score. It's like such a cool, like, oh, there's something happening here. Pay attention to this. Oh, there's like a problem we got to solve. And then the score itself is like almost kind of like a auditory representation of our characters running around in order to solve the thing. It captures that feeling of like the ups and downs of going through the adventure and the fast paced, exciting nature of they're going to be traveling around, going to different places, meeting people. And also just the intro credits alone. You know, there's dinosaurs and jetpacks and far flung jungles and pyramids. And like it just so incredibly sells the idea of what it is like right out the gate from that intro credits scene. The Tintin show is kind of similar, but unlike Johnny Quest, the intro song for the Tintin cartoon is like really good. But it's also the only piece of music that they have in the show. So every time that there's music in the show, they just play the theme again. And eventually you just get really sick of it. <laughs> if, if you watch the show, you're just like, they just keep using the same musical cue over and over again. And it's a great musical cue, but you get tired of it. Whereas this is like, yeah, like you said, it makes up for the limited animation and everything because it's like everything aside from the animation, like the literal movement of the illustrations, everything else beside it is so vibrant and full of life. The music. The direction, the illustrations and the backgrounds, it's just so full of life that you almost don't notice that it's not really that animated. And the other thing, too, is because Wildey's directorial style is so specific, he knows how to milk that stuff to make it so it looks like something is happening. And the intro, now that I'm thinking about it, the intro to Mr. of the Lizard Man is actually really similar. He also directed a animated Planet of the Apes show for... Hanna-Barbera. And the intro to that is very similar as well, where the first shot of Mr. the Lizardman is silhouette of a ship a mile away from us, sailing across the ocean, foreground elements of wrecked ships in, you know, detailed out passing in front of us, right? And the first shot of the Planet of the Apes show is a large desert exterior. As we track across it, we see silhouetted foreground elements of ape men having been crucified which is like so fucking rad and it just immediately is like you want to know why the fuck these dudes have been crucified and you're like this is a kids show why the fuck are these dudes being depicted as being crucified this is amazing but also it's the same visual mechanic you know it's it's him layering foreground background creating a sense of depth but not actually having to animate all that much you know, it's just two plates. Yeah, and I don't know if you talk about this at all in this, but, you know, they they did this show as one of the first shows that they had done. And while it had this pioneering limited animation style, there was also all these other details of it where they were like, actually, we could just make this way cheaper if we just didn't do any of that bullshit. And then all the Hanna-Barbera shows after this are just like a huge nosedive in terms of like quality and sort of like 
artistic integrity, which is funny because I see I see so many people on social media that are just like they'll talk about some new cartoon that comes out or whatever. And they'll be like, people don't even try anymore with cartoons. Back in the old days, they put a lot of like work in, I don't know, it was specifically in some like Facebook groups where people were talking about old Hanna-Barbera cartoons. And they were just like, this was like the good old days of cartoons where they actually like put real work and effort into them. And they were like master artworks rather than today's shit that's just like cranked out. I'm just like, no, it wasn't. They were literally just like businessmen just being like, what's the cheapest we could make this bullshit? But I think that there's something exciting about that. Look, there's the craven businessman who's making as much money hand over fist. There's the pressures of capitalism. Not cool. But I think there is something exciting about as an artist being given a canvas that is slightly too small than what you need to paint on and trying to figure out how to get your story into that space. It's a cool box to try and work in you know like it's the thing that they always say about star trek of gene roddenberry's box of the future there is no money there is no greed there is no pain there is no conflict and then all the writers on next generation were super pissed off because they were like how are we supposed to make stories where there is no conflict and there is no pain and there is no money what motivates people you know how do you tell stories with this and obviously they eventually figured it out but it took them about three seasons to figure out how to fucking do that shit And I love that aspect of a lot of the early to mid 70s animation. But I will say that specifically Johnny Quest for me is the high point because it was a mixture of they knew they were going to do limited animation. They knew they were trying to do not Disney quality, you know, 24 frames per second animation. They weren't even they weren't even fucking with persistence of vision. They were fucking with persistence of glancing, (laughs) you know, like they weren't really going for it. But they were still spending a lot of money on it to try and make the aspects that were there the highest quality possible, which is really evident in the finished product. And that's where you get that vibe from. That's where you get that energy, that je ne sais quoi that you're talking about. The like, oh, man, even though there's only this guy blinking that's animated, these backgrounds are lushly painted and the score is an original score that they've recorded in a studio. Like, it's really fucking cool. One additional thing I want to talk about before we move on to our favorite episodes is this theme in a lot of adventure stories about absent mothers or absent female figures. A lot of adventure stories, because they're marketed at men, typically were marketed at men, and because they come from either descendant from or literally from the pulp eras, a lot of them don't have women characters that are actual characters nine times out of ten. They're just there to serve either plot functions or be objects of desire. There's a lot of fridging, I guess, is a polite way of putting it. You know, women characters that are not are not around for dramatic purposes. And Johnny Quest, it's definitely not the first to do it, but it's maybe the most iconic and emblematic of this trope, specifically because even though Doc Savage his mom is not around and his dad raised him on an island in order to be a you know the greatest human alive and then he hangs out with a bunch of dudes there's not as much homosexual undertones as there is in Johnny Quest specifically because Race Bannon gets assigned to them as a bodyguard and he protects them and he loves them and he's stern but he has a heart of gold and they are the only ones that have pierced the veil of his tough exterior it's very gay and i Love it. I think Doug Wildey would be pretty upset at that. That's not how he intends it at all. But I really love that idea that like if we can't have mom, at least we have two dads. Yeah, and it's really hard to interpret it in any other way as well, because it's not a normal dynamic, especially as a kid watching it and just being like, oh, so like he like lives with his dad and then like other guy who just takes care of him. That's not a normal thing that 
is like, oh yeah, of course, everybody has like a bodyguard. So it's really hard to interpret it any other way than like, oh, he's like his stepdad. And it's funny too, when you can feel them kind of being like, maybe we should do more Jezebel Jade stories where Race Bannon gets to smooch on some ladies because this maybe could be interpreted as gay, maybe. But we don't want that. Look, I personally also just really like the platonic friendship of Race and Benton Quest. I think it's really cool that there's this man who's fucked up and kind of can't see the world correctly because he's a scientific genius and he's making all these inventions nine times out of ten they seem like they could be used for weapons and he never sees it that way he doesn't really relate to his kids properly he's kind of out to lunch and he's obviously in the throes of grief because his wife is no longer around she's passed away for undetermined causes and there's this guy that comes in and acts as this kind of emotional nucleus for this family and he keeps it together and he seems like the least likely person to be able to pull all of these people together and give them a sense of stability he's a literal spy a literal murderer but he finds this sense of humanity through this connection to these eggheads that he initially seems like he wouldn't have anything in common with and i i really love that idea and then sometimes I want them to smooch as well. But I, I love the idea that you can be saved by platonic relationships is really something that speaks to me a lot. And the fact that it's a found family that is not a found family in the way that we typically see it of like, oh, this is my new stepmom and I'm resistant to this initially. But then eventually like, oh, I've learned to love her and she's my new mom now and she's going to give me the things that my mom would have given me if she was here. I really like that. And I think that there's also kind of a sadness to it too in that these little boys are only being raised around men and even though they're globetrotting and literally saving the world and experiencing all of these cultures, there's inherently something that they're losing. You know, the idea of mother in absentia is a theme in all of these Johnny Quest episodes that really strikes home to me. It, it feels very palpable. And I don't again, I don't necessarily know that I think Doug Wildey was purposefully doing that. But I think that the end result is that I'm just having the time of my fucking life flying in fucking jets. This is the shit. Mom would have never let me do that. I'm glad she's dead. Maybe the limited animation as well lends itself to this, but the way that you can kind of project those things onto these stories whenever they're not so pointed because they kind of aren't. These stories don't go in depth on like character development in any way at all. There are these stories about adventures, but because of that, you can kind of breathe interpretation onto them in kind of interesting ways. This is an interesting example of that. And this has actually been acknowledged on the show before. But one thing that I always think about when I watch the intro to the show, when they're introducing the characters, they're all in the jet and they're kind of just sitting quietly as they're flying and it's going to each character and showing their name and i always like think about it like they're just like decompressing after like a adventure after this big adventure we see it ends with like oh bandit <laughs> and then after that they're just like fucking traumatized because they almost just got killed by some henchman and a giant robot and so they're all just on the plane silently just like fuck yeah the intro credit really does feel like that feeling when you're on road trips as a kid, you have no real sense of time. So everything just feels interminable. So even when you're driving like only a couple hours, it's like, oh my God, we're gonna die in this car. Like this is so long. And it, it does have that kind of like, if you strip away the cool soundtrack, 
they're just kind of like you're saying like staring off into space <laughs> like fuck me <laughs> yeah the thing about johnny quest to me that works though is that enthusiasm that you're talking about the fact that johnny as a protagonist little kid antagonists are hard man or protagonists are hard and they usually fucking suck and johnny does not suck he gets in trouble he's the instigation point in a lot of stories but it's never, at least for me, it's never annoying. Yeah, they don't make him like a little, usually the impulse is to make like a little kid character really like smart Alec. And then that just becomes annoying. Yeah, I mean, I I love Johnny Quest specifically. I really love Haji and Race and Benton. The only one I kind of don't love is fucking <laughs> is Bandit. Maybe that's colored by the fact that I know that Doug Wildey didn't like Bandit. So I'm like grumpy or whatever i wanted to replicate that feeling though of like this found family of people doing a thing we've talked about it before a bit on the show my book mary tyler moorhawk which comes out next week february 13th you should go buy it complex stores when it comes out but it's about a family of globe trotting adventurers mary tyler moorhawk being the tom swift jr or johnny quest archetype of like a little kid who low-key is the leader of a group of people doing a thing and the thing that I always liked about Johnny Quest is that he's good without trying to be good. You know, like he's somebody who does the right thing always, not because he's trying to be perceived as someone doing the right thing, but because that just is the right thing. He's inherently and naturally good. And for MTMH, that's something I wanted to kind of dial up even more to the degree that like her character design is just like three circles you know it's like the buns of her hair and then a circle for her head in the same context of like that's the reason why they have the oval off because yeah you're forced to be good because there's no corners to hide in and i revisited a bunch of this johnny quest stuff while working on mary tyler moorhawk and the whole time i was just like anytime i was tired and didn't want to work on it and was upset or thought the thing was never going to be published or whatever i would put on johnny quest and just be like god damn it all right here we go this is the shit I need to make something that feels like this. Yeah, my favorite character is Mary Tyler Moorhawk's cat sidekick, Spandit. Yeah, Spandit, yeah. Notice, though, in MTMH, there is no analogous character to Bandit. <laughs> I, didn't do a, I didn't do a Bandit. Yeah, well, it's funny because I think we, we talked about Scooby-Doo at some point, not even on the podcast, and you were just like, yeah, I, I like Scooby-Doo, but honestly, I didn't like Scooby-Doo. I liked all the other characters. <laughs> and it seemed like you specifically just don't like animal sidekicks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if that's true or not. I just I think I don't like when I can tell that the show is pandering to me as a kid. That's why I didn't like Robin, because I was like, oh, he's the kid character. He's the character I'm supposed to relate to. I don't like this. Don't make me try and relate to fucking Robin. This is stupid. Now I'm like, I fucking love Robin. But, you know, I feel like when you first become aware of the way these things are made and that Sometimes they are specifically targeting your age bracket or interest set. At least for me, I kind of buck against that stuff. When I was a little younger, I was more like, oh, this is fucking stupid. I think in general, that was kind of the thing is like little kids don't want to relate to like little kid characters. They want to be like the adult or like teenage characters. A little kid, they're not like, I want to be a different little kid. They want to be the cool teenager or adult. Let's talk about our favorite eps. I, I have a couple here. Do you have any episodes that stick out in your mind as like quintessential Johnny Quest episodes? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the first episode is just great. It's just such a great first episode of a show. And then uh, aside from that, I really loved the Curse of Anubis episode. I just love mummies. The mummy in that 
is amazing. Like, it just looks so cool. And then I also, I also remember liking the episode where Dr. Zen has like a robot spider. Yeah, that's the robot spy. Yeah. Once again, I just loved robots. When I was a kid, I was, I just loved mummies and robots. So those two episodes stick out to me is whenever I think about Johnny Quest, I'm like, oh, I want to see that mummy episode. I want to see that episode with that giant robot spider. The cold open of Mary Tyler Moorhawk is all of the Moorhawk characters running through a South American pyramid being chased by six armed mummies. So, yeah, I agree with the Curse of Anubis one for sure. Uh, I love that episode. Also, shocker of all shockers, I love mummies. Just love mummies. I think they're fucking awesome. The three that I put down with Shadow the Condor, which is the like not Red Baron story where they go and they meet a World War One pilot. They're like staying in his castle or whatever. And then the climax is race and the Baron getting into a dogfight in planes, which is fucking awesome. Next up for me was the Invisible Monster, mostly because the animation in that one is super wacky and weird and experimental. It's basically like this episode where they find an irradiated monster beast thing and it's animated by like scratching on the film and painting in like abstract ways which it looks really cool and then for me the third one is what you just mentioned the robot spy the one of where dr zin sends a spider robot to the compound and they have to fight it off which is really fucking cool the cold open of mary tyler morhawk the comic book sections are morhawks running through a pyramid fighting a six-armed monster and then the end of the first chapter is them fighting a giant spider monster robot that has a human brain powering it. And then the twist is that it opens up and a character named Dr. Zebra gets out. What? <laughs> wow. Shocking. Yeah. There we go. Shocking. Yeah, I think like the technology in the show, it was like really different than any other like cartoon that I was watching at the time. You know, obviously a lot of cartoons from the 90s that had this very like maximalist aesthetic to them. And, you know, while I love like Transformers and you know, that kind of stuff, the technology. So like the ships and the vehicles and the robots and stuff like that in Johnny Quest, they just have this really cool, like sleek kind of sexy aesthetic to them. And yeah, that spider robot, it just looks really cool because of just how sleek and like smooth and like segmented it is. It's just like a really cool look. Yeah, it goes back to what we were talking before about the popular science, popular mechanics, interest in the real world, interest in futurism, but it's the 1960s version of futurism. So they're like, in the year 1990, which is always really fun to see how people think things will evolve and whether they become kind of close to it or not close to it, you know, is always really cool. Yeah, I love the aesthetic of the show more than anything else. And I think that's kind of what you're hitting on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. A couple weeks ago, I watched the Incredibles movies with my kids. And I noticed for the first time ever that those movies take place in the 1960s. They're period pieces. I never realized that before. They're definitely obviously inspired by like James Bond stuff. But I feel like they must have also been inspired by Johnny Quest, especially, you know, because like Brad Bird made those movies and he's just like a huge like animation head and he like knows his shit. So they must have been inspired by it because I realized that like it's very similar in that if you don't pay attention, you don't realize that they take place in the 1960s because they don't focus on like 1960s aesthetic. There's not this focus on it where they're showing like rotary television phones and hippies and all that stuff. They don't show any of that stuff. Aside from the fact that you realize at some point that nobody has like cell phones 
and people aren't watching like flat screen TVs and stuff like that, you would never even realize that it takes place in the past. But there's all this like retro futuristic technology in the movies that is kind of what made me assume it took place in modern day because it just has a bunch of advanced technology. But the technology, when I realized this and I was like, oh, yeah, this is like this like takes place in the 60s. The technology is all that like Johnny Quest style. This is just like what people in the 60s thought might be advanced technology in the future. Yeah, the pull of Johnny Quest, but make it superhero is really an interesting aesthetic choice. And I think it's totally on point, almost to the degree of like, we're going to take all of the bones of the superhero things that were innovated in the 1940s and then filter it through the Johnny Quest aesthetic, even down to the degree of like the Incredibles uniforms are basically just Bob Kane's original Batman designs, but then made good because Bob Kane sucks at design. Even I think it's the first one, right, is where there's that big robot with a giant circular base and a little head and then like arms. Yeah, it's like the main bad guy thing at the end. Yeah, like that is just an evolved version of the spider robot from the robot spy. And the secret island bases, the globe trotting, the, you know, secret worlds right underneath what we're looking at and aware of as an average citizen. Like, I think it's all there. You know, it's very apparent that that is right beneath the surface, you know. Johnny Quest ran from September 18th, 1964 to March 11th, 1965 on ABC. It was a massive success. However, the show, it bucked the low business model of normal Hanna-Barbera TV shows and was canceled due to its production costs, which is so fucking bleak. I was just gonna say, even with the limited animation cost-cutting measures, it still was just like, this is hurting our bottom line. I'm Hanna-Barbera, the female owner of this company that Spandrew thought when he existed when he was a kid. I literally thought about that like four times while writing this episode. I almost titled the first act, Act One, A Lady Named Hanna-Barbera. However, this would not be the end of Johnny Quest. In 1986, a rebooted show would be titled The New Adventures of Johnny Quest, and it would be aired on Fantastic World of Hanna-Barbera. It would only last 13 episodes. This is the intro credits. Oh man, the animation already not as cool. Nah, nah. Like, technically, there's more animation happening, but, like, I don't know. Yeah, it just, it just looks like any, like, Saturday morning cartoon that was being made at that time, really. It's just... Almost has kind of, like, an anime look in a way. Yeah, it does, kind of. But it just so does not have Doug Wildey's you know, vibe to it, man. It's, it's so, like, it's so missing that. Nah. Yeah. Nah. Uh, the show only lasted 13 episodes, so your nah is not unwarranted. Spandrew, let's read the development section from the New Adventures wiki page here. Would you mind giving us a hand reading this guy? In the late 1970s, Hanna-Barbera produced concept art for a new series entitled Young Dr. Quest, The Adventures of John Quest featuring an older Johnny, Haji, and an adopted Japanese girl. They would be accompanied by pets Bandit 2 and Oboe. <laughs> like that they had, they're like, we're not going to like just let this slip through the logic of cartoons. Bandit died. <laughs> and, and this is the second Bandit. 
Like, we're not just going to, like, let him be alive and just ignore the fact that dogs' lifespans are short. No, he died. Oboe is an unspecified species of monkey and received support from Benton Quest and Race Bannon at times, with Race having since married Jade. According to Disney historian Jim Corcus, Doug Wildey later pitched the concept as simply named Young Dr. Quest to Joseph Barbera, featuring Johnny as a 22-year-old MIT graduate going on adventures with Race and Haji. By the mid-1980s, the edited episodes of the original Johnny Quest series, each episode was missing about five minutes of footage edited for time constraints and content, were part of the Fantastic World's second season lineup alongside Yogi's Treasure Hunt, Pawpaws, and Galtar and the Golden Lance. Man, I forgot about Pawpaws. Thirteen episodes were produced in 1986 to accompany the original in the Fantastic World programming block. These episodes were referred to simply as Johnny Quest on their title cards and were noticeably less violent and more kid-friendly than the 1960s versions. This was followed by two television films, Johnny's Golden Quest in 1993 and Johnny Quest vs. the Cyber Insects in 1995, with Don Messick, Granville Van Dusen, and Rob Paulson voicing Dr. Quest, Race, and Haji. None of those people are not white. The 1980s Quest series introduced a new character named Hadrock, an ancient man made of stone. He did not return in later versions of the program. Just before we move on, the idea of that, I mean, obviously we know none of this happened and also that show just didn't seem like it was particularly good. But the idea of an older Johnny Quest and Haji with like an older race going on adventures, as much as I like the idea of just continuing with it being, you know, Johnny Quest as a kid, are you familiar with JoJo's Bizarre Adventure or just like how that manga slash anime functions where like every season slash like chapter of the manga is focusing on one character in this family in a certain time period and then in the next chapter it's like a descendant of his and then they'll bring in like one or two characters from the previous chapter to like be on the adventure with him and they're much older so in season one there's this character named Ario Speedwagon and then in the second chapter the new Jojo he's accompanied by like an elderly speed wagon. And then in the third chapter, there's a character named uh, Jotaro Kujo, and he's accompanied by the old version of the original Joseph Joestar from the second chapter. And so the, they're flashing forward in time. And also there's these characters that are like overlapping and carrying on to the point where in the fourth chapter, Joseph Joestar is in it. And he's just like fully dementia riddled because he's so old. There's a really cool idea for a Johnny quest where it just does that. Where, like, there's the second chapter where it's adult Johnny Quest and Haji with, like, an elderly race Bannon. And then in the third chapter, like, maybe it's, like, Johnny Quest's son. And then, like, Haji is, like, his mentor or whatever. Yeah, I, I would love that. There is something about the, like, primal innocence of boy adventurer, girl adventurer archetypes that when they get aged up always feels a little weird to me. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, like, for very obvious reasons that are don't need to be said we're into the boy adventurers wait that sounds bad but you know what i mean <laughs> yeah 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 we just love kids you know we just love the kids i mean mm, no that's an okay thing to say right no mm, all right yeah no i mean yeah yeah 100%. i mean uh yeah and there's been definitely you know versions of that archetype right like that idea is the venture brothers thing every character in venture brothers is just what if Johnny Quest, but make him older? And then what if Johnny Quest, but make him even older? And then like the monarch is Johnny Quest, but make him villain. And then, you know, Jonas Venture is Johnny Quest, but make him capable or egotistical. Like they're always circling that Johnny Quest tropes, which, you know, I love Venture Brothers. I think it's great. 
1986 was originally going to be The Year of Quest, a new toy line, a feature film written by Fred Decker and directed by Richard Donner, and a new show were going to premiere. Needless to say, the movie and the toy line didn't happen. But you know what did happen in 1986? The Kamiko Johnny Quest comics, written by William Mester Lobes and illustrated by a bevy of the 1980s's best comic book artists. The book, originally planned as a limited miniseries, ran for 31 issues, as well as spin-off titles Johnny Quest Classics, which ran for three, and a three-issue Jezebel Jade spin-off series. Spandrew, I know that I talk about this book all the time, but have you ever have you ever read any of these? I don't remember. Not really. I read a couple of them because I, I read a couple years ago, I was reading Future Quest, that like Hanna-Barbera crossover series. And I started reading some of the other like Hanna-Barbera books because I just read that and I was I just got interested in the other books that they were doing. And I read the Snagglepuss book, which is amazing. I read some of the Flintstones book and those were like newer, obviously. And then I tried to go and read a couple older like Hanna-Barbera comic. I was just in a vibe at that point. I was just like, I wanted more content. And so I think I looked at a few of these Johnny Quest books. Other than that, I've never really read them. They're very good. They do kind of what you were alluding to earlier that the show doesn't do, where they provide texture and depth to the characters. They explain what happened to the matriarch of the Quest family and how she passed away. They have a lot of covers by... Dave Stevens, co-creator of Rocketeer, which is really cool. Doug Wildey does a couple covers of the main series. And then the book started selling so well that Kamiko went to him and was like, hey, would you be interested in illustrating some comics? And he was like, eh, not really. And they were like, well, what if you just took like your three favorite episodes from the old show and remade them as comics? So you can just kind of take the elements that you like from those shows, but downplay some of the slapstick humor that we know you didn't like that they put in. And he was like, oh, all right. So he did Shadow of the Condor. Is it Curse of the Timberwolf? Curse of the Werewolf? It's the Werewolf one, whatever the phone that one is called. And maybe Curse of Anubis? I don't remember the third one. But he did a three-issue series where it's Doug Wildey redrawing the episodes as comics. And they're really great. They're really, really good. And then the Jezebel Jade series is drawn by one of the Kubert brothers and also written by William Messner Loeb's. To me, Messner Loeb's is like the definitive Johnny Quest writer. Like, obviously, Wildey is the definitive aesthetic origin point. But some of his writing in the episodes isn't that great. And a lot of the episodes aren't written by him. But I feel like Messner Loeb's really took the core of the ideas and evolved them. He did both really grounded things and also really goofy things and really showed how elastic the franchise is and how really there's a lot of depth to these characters that might not be immediately apparent on the first glance of the TV show. Yeah, I need I need to track some of these down and give them a read. Yeah, I think you'd like them. They're really good. Mark Hempel draws the majority of the back half of the series. I don't have any ill will towards him, but I don't necessarily love him. The first half of the series art-wise is amazing. It's Mark Hempel and a bunch of other people. You know, there's like Windy Peeney draws an issue. Steve Rude draws an issue. Johnny Quest would lay dormant for close to 10 years. And then in 1996, the internet, quote unquote, would bring the franchise roaring back to life. So we're going to watch the intro credits for the real adventures of Johnny Quest. Which is also a show that I watched on Cartoon Network in the 90s. Dude, I this this intro credit sequence just blew my mind. It is so fucking cool. And it, it gets me amped even to this day watching it. Oh, yeah, man. it's like it's it it's uh, scenes from the show being projected on a three like a CGI 
kind of like an early, you know a mid '90s CGI canyon, like a like a not but not like a real canyon, like a like a cyberspace canyon, and we're just floating through the canyon. God damn it! The violins and like the original score, but make it Indiana Jones is such a smart decision. Johnny Quest. The only thing I don't like about that show is the fact that it's called the real adventures. Like the other adventures don't matter. And I'm like, mm. I'd be interested in, and maybe you know, but I'd be interested in knowing why it's called that. Cause I remember the reason why the Ghostbusters cartoon is called the real Ghostbusters is because the Ghostbusters name was owned by Filmation and they had this show in the in the 70s that was about like these two ghost hunters and a gorilla that would like go around trapping ghosts. So when they made the Ghostbusters movie, they like licensed the name from them. And so when they went to make the cartoon, Filmation was like, we're going to make a cartoon first, motherfuckers, and fucking Asylum Mockbuster you. They made a Ghostbuster show based on that show with the gorilla. And so whenever they went to make the Ghostbuster show, they had to legally title it something different and sort of as a like, fuck you to Filmation, they called it the real Ghostbusters to be like, no, this is the actual one with, you know, the Peter Venkman and Egon, the thing you actually care about. This is that not that monkey shit. I don't think it was anything that convoluted. I think they literally were just like, oh, no, this is the real one. Watch this one. Don't watch the other ones. Peter Lawrence and Takeshi Masunaga were asked to develop a new version of the of the Quest franchise in the early 90s when Turner Entertainment acquired the Hanna-Barbera backlist. And according to the Real Adventures of Johnny Quest wiki page... Hanna-Barbera president Fred Seibert, who I've met and pitched to, and he's a nice fellow, allowed Lawrence to create a new team of companions for Johnny, but Lawrence chose to bring back the original group. Sebastian Lawrence decided to make the series as realistic as possible through accurate physics and depictions of machinery. Lawrence emphasized believability, eschewing ridiculous laser guns for real sidearms. The creative team researched child psychology to ensure they could depict realistic action and consequences without fueling nightmares. Cybert touted Quest as the home alone of adventure with high-tech multicultural themes that would appeal to contemporary youth. Promoters promised the new Quest would avoid mindless violence, chauvinism, xenophobia, and insensitivity, addressing historical criticisms of the classic series. Turner also claimed that Quest would appeal to any gender, stating, Traditionally, action-adventure animation may be stronger with boys, but in this case, storylines are being developed to draw girls in. We're really hoping for a wide berth of viewership. Cybert further described the show's themes as the X-Files for kids, citing that difficult questions and mysteries would be posed in each episode. Departures from the classic series include new character designs and the introduction of a new character to the Quest family. Takashi designed Johnny to be edgy and handsome and rendered characters in the style of Japanese animation to differentiate from American superhero cartoons. The team used a new character, Race's daughter Jessie Bannon, to create conflict with Johnny. She was introduced in Johnny's Golden Quest as Race's daughter by Jezebel Jade. Lawrence initially titled the show Johnny Quest Extraordinary Adventures, but the title changed in 1995 to its final name. Intended for a 1995 release with 65 episodes, Real Adventures fell into development hell. Roughly 30 scripts and only 8 reels were in progress by March 1995. After 18 months of production, Hanna-Barbera removed both Lawrence and Takashi in 1996, hiring John Ng and Cosmo Anzilati 
to finish the first 26 episodes. Certain sequences necessitated exhaustive work and heavy revision. A new team headed by David Lippman, Davis Dois, and Larry Houston finished 26 more episodes for broadcast as a separate series named The New Johnny Quest. Time Warner's acquisition of Turner negated this plan, leading to the episode's release as the second season of Real Adventures. Ultimately, the show lasted two seasons of 26 episodes each. The main differentiation between this series and the previous two is that the internet is here. And the main idea is that our Quest family, they go on adventures and then every episode they also, it's split 2D, 3D. They also go into a proto-internet style world called Quest World and they battle villains of the week and different adversaries in Quest World. If you're not familiar, this show is like half and half. 2D animation, and then they go into like a virtual reality, and then it's like mid 90s CGI, basically. It looks a lot like that show Reboot. I really like this show. It's got flaws, but I really like it. It's fun. I love Jesse as a character. I like the aged up Johnny, and I like the fact that it also is canonically bridging the gap between the original series and this new stuff with the movies. Yeah, I really like Real Adventures of Johnny Quest. If nothing else, just for that intro theme, you know. The intro credit sequence is just, it's as good, if not better than the original, which is really a high bar to meet for me. Yeah, you should check out the actual intro, like the video, because it's a really good intro to a show. It hypes you as an as a 11-year-old or whatever the fuck, it hypes you up. Well, yeah, so, you know, we, we talked about Johnny Quest. Obviously, we both love the show and its legacy. We've touched a little bit on the influence it had on your new book that's coming out. So do you want to talk more about Mary Tyler Moorhawk and kind of parallels and, you know, anything else about the book? Yeah, sure. So the name of the book, as I've said before, is Mary Tyler Moorhawk. It's a 300 page graphic novel coming out from Top Shelf, February 13th. The book is split into two halves. The first half is an action adventure comic about a team of globe trotting adventurers as they try to stop the end of the world. Mary Tyler Moorhawk being the protagonist. She's surrounded by an adoptive family, Meredith Moorhawk Cho, her stepmother, Roxy Racer, their trusty bodyguard, and Cutie Boy, a robotic resurrected version of her deceased brother. I think it's pretty easy to see where those influences fall. It's just as gay as Johnny Quest, but it's just make it lesbian. Just make all of it lesbian. (laughs) The other half of the book is a prose novel that's told in epistolary zines from 100 years in the future about a journalist named Dave Baker who becomes obsessed with a TV show called Mary Tyler Moorhawk that got canceled after only nine episodes. And so the interstitial stuff in between all of these comics is this kind of Don Quixote-esque journey that this journalist goes on to try and track down the reclusive creator of the TV show who kind of left the public eye after the show got canceled. And he's thrown for a loop when he discovers that the person who created the Mary Tyler Moorhawk TV show was also named Dave Baker. So the kind of show deals with some elements that are cribbed from Doug Wildey's real life, some that are cribbed from my life. It's an action adventure comic and also this weird postmodern detective story about a journalist who lives in a world where physical objects have been outlawed so you can't collect comics or movies or have any sort of sense of a cultural memory. And he becomes a part of this subculture called physicalists who are people who really love collecting all these things and are obsessed with nostalgia and they go to these weird basement shows and they're like trading tapes of, you know, weird, obscure pieces of media. And the obsession over Mary Tyler Moorhawk dovetails thematically with the comics sections into 
places that I think are pretty cool. I'm very proud of the book. If you've been listening to the show for any sense of time, you know that I've been working on it for like fucking five years and finally coming out February 13th. And I'm super excited and I'm very thankful that it's finally being released. And I'm excited that hopefully this will be my little homage and paying respects to Doug Wildey and Johnny Quest. So it's Johnny Quest, but make it Stephen King's Dark Tower series, but make it Snow Crash. Yeah, pretty much. I usually say it's Johnny Quest by way of Infinite Jest and House of Leaves. But yeah, February 13, it will be out everywhere. Pick it up from your local grocery store. And on that note, I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me online, you can do so at heydavebaker.com. Or please go buy Mary Tyler Moorhawk wherever you get books. Spandrew, where can people find you online? You can't find me online because I don't use social media. But you can go to dapricerights.com and get Andrew's book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. And also you can follow us on social media at Deep Cuts Pod on Instagram, Deep Cuts Podcast on Facebook, join our Facebook group or join our Discord server, bit.ly.com slash Deep Cuts Discord. Follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. Follow me on TikTok because I fucking lied earlier and I am on social media at Dead Boy Detective. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.